In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together. We ask your blessing on our efforts as we near the end of the Gospel of Matthew. The most important part is still to come. But help us to understand how and why the writer of this Gospel is depicting it as a travelogue almost. So we ask your blessing and we thank you for praise and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. As we've been talking about this gospel, particularly last week, as sort of a travel along a road, not so much a visible highway or, or street but nevertheless as a mission that Jesus had to accomplish certain things. And uh, I'm sure that he, like the rest of us, when we go on a uh, long trip and we're going to be away for a while, or on the other hand, we want to prepare for our arrival at our destination, so we make a long list of things that have to be done, uh, we want to make sure that we've covered all of the bases of what we've left behind and we're constantly sort of preparing and reviewing the events or the possible events as they come uh, in the, uh, the near future. And that's the way we should kind of look at uh, these last chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Today's chapter, he has reached Jerusalem for the final time. And as I said last week, several people have said to me over the years when I've taught this before, is, well, why is that so important? Well, it's important for several reasons. Jerusalem was always the center of Judaism and still is, for that matter. You might uh, talk to people who have never been, or, you know, Jewish people, who have never been to Israel, but yet they honor Jerusalem as a very important uh, place, almost as a shrine in itself. And that's why their politics uh, is so much different than most other countries. They are protecting a legacy that has developed over the last 4,000 years. <clears throat> so Jesus has now reached that point, but there are several things that need to be accomplished. He needs to teach his apostles, primarily, and his disciples several things before he turns over the mission that he began and will end soon uh, to those who he leaves in charge. That is, Matthew, or uh, rather, uh, Peter and the rest of the apostles and the church in general. <clears throat> Remember, he already established the idea of Peter and the apostles receiving uh, the commission of the church by passing the 
keeps, you know, uh, this is what we read a couple of weeks ago. Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth or retain on earth will be retained uh, in heaven. That is the establishment of the hierarchy, you might say, of the, the Catholic Church, and he is continuing that, but he's got several things that he still has to accomplish. He has arrived in Jerusalem now to a, a very great crowd waiting, uh, waving palm branches, uh, yelling and crying out, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And why would you have a bunch of people yell that out? Well, it has to do with fulfilling a part of a prophecy uh, from the prophet Zechariah, uh, chapter 5, I believe it is. Uh, and it says, and I'll read part of it here. Say to daughter Zion, behold your king comes to you, meek and riding on an ass, on the colt of an ass, a beast of burden. Well, why is that so important? It's fulfillment of something that has always been recognized that when a conqueror or a leader of some kind comes on a friendly basis, he will be riding on a young donkey. Um, that's what an ass really is, besides uh, a few other thoughts. Um, but it's important in a way because all of Jesus' actions has been to fulfill the role that Moses started. All right? Jesus has told us already that he did not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. Big difference. Many people thought by his breaking uh, several of the laws that were set up not by God, not by Moses, but by the followers uh, down through the ages. Remember, as I've said many times, the dietary laws that Moses established, particularly in the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the desert, were for hygiene purposes. They were not part of the uh, adoration or they were not an extension of the Ten Commandments, they were simply common sense for people living in a, such a large group of people living in a desert where uh, you can imagine uh, water was uh, scarce and other conditions were very primitive or rough or in some cases not existent. Uh, so certain laws had to be observed for the health and welfare of the people. But over a period of time, they took on a religious significance so that at the time of Christ, there was so many laws that they were binding practically everything that an individual could do. And right here in one of our uh, 
excerpts today, you know, Jesus uh, criticizes the Pharisees because he said you set up all of these laws uh, and you don't observe them yourself, but you require everyone else to observe them and you don't do anything to help them. Uh, so Jesus is doing things that were, were rather dangerous. Uh, he's practically begging uh, for the criticism and the objections of the Pharisees. But nevertheless, he's doing it because he wants us to use some common sense. He wanted his apostles and his disciples. And when I say apostles and disciples, uh, several people seem to think, well, that's a separate group that existed at the time of Christ. We are disciples of Christ. So when he, Jesus, or the writers of these Gospels and the letters of Paul and the others, talk about the disciples, he's talking to us. And we have to take what is being said seriously and see how it applies to us today. All right. But getting back to uh, these chapters here, Matthew's Gospel is a little on the subdued uh, side. It doesn't bring out a lot of the uh, joy and the wildness of the crowd. But if you read Mark's Gospel, uh, it's a lot different. And that is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. We are celebrating Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem towards his final goal, which we will talk about at length next week. All right. That is the two things, the two uh, legs of a very important goal of Christ, and that is passion, death, and resurrection. We'll talk about the resurrection the following week. But next week is very important because it is the culmination of Jesus' mission. All right. But he wants to get several things across to his disciples and his apostles before that time. And so I'm going to take some of these. There's several of them uh, in Matthew's Gospel. They are kind of uh, abbreviated, you might say, but there's more to it than that. So if you have questions and don't understand uh, some of these things, then uh, let me know so we'll go a little bit further. Okay. Uh, we've already talked about the entrance into Jerusalem. Again, that is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, and that is the whole idea of the palms. They are to remind us of Jesus entering into Jerusalem and entering into the last part of his life and his mission. Okay. Now, after he gets into the temple, remember, the people are preparing for Passover. All of these things are not just coincidental. They all happen at certain times. And Jesus, as we will talk about next week, is actually crucified on the day of Passover. 
Why? Because he is the sacrificial lamb, sacrificial sacrifice that is being offered to the Father. And what day, what day that could be anything greater than the day of Passover? But the whole idea of the people being in Jerusalem, remember, they were required to go to uh, Jerusalem regardless of where they lived three times a year. And Passover was one of those times. So the city of Jerusalem was packed with people from all over Israel. Uh, you had a number of people. And many of them had learned about Jesus or experienced his teachings, perhaps even some of his miracles, and therefore they were in the crowd and they had greater reason uh, to be so exuberant, so joyful for his coming. And again, that is what we will be celebrating on Palm Sunday. Then Jesus has uh, an experience that is written, and this may or may not have happened together. Um, that is what we call the cleansing of the temple. Because it is a Passover time, there had to be, uh, according to the Jewish rules, an offering given to the temple to be uh, put into the Holocaust, you might say, offered on that day. And so each family had to bring uh, an offering of some kind of an animal. And the poorer people would bring uh, birds and uh, small animals. The more wealthy people would bring, a, bring greater animals and so forth. But unfortunately, that became sort of a contest of how great I am because I brought such a large animal. Uh, and it got carried away. Originally, it was an acceptable procedure. But in time, it took more importance uh, than the celebration and the sacrifices themselves. And the temple rulers began to make this a regular business. One of the courts of the temple, remember there were one, two, three, four, five courts within the temple. One of them was open to the uh, buying and selling of these various animals for the purpose of uh, the Holocaust. Another part of the one of the courts was done to change Roman coins into uh, Jewish coins that were acceptable for uh, the offerings of money. And it was important because the values were not that different. It was the quality and the quantity of silver in the Jewish coins versus the value and the quantity of silver in any of the Roman coins. That became more important than the offerings themselves. So, the point I'm making here is that 
the temple became a business rather than a shrine of worship and prayer. And that is why when the Romans came in 70 years later and destroyed Jerusalem, the first thing that they really destroyed was the temple. And God allowed that to happen because it was being misused. It was not a temple of worship. It was misused. And Jesus gives us a prediction of that when he says, if this temple was, uh, and uh, unfortunately it's not written that way in the Gospels, but when he's saying, is if you destroyed this temple, I would raise it in three days. But he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his own body. And it was one of the predictions of the resurrection. And of course, that is one of the things that they held against him when Pilate was trying to find out why they were so intent on killing Jesus or having him crucified. And one of the answers was that he predicted that he could destroy the temple and it would be rebuilt in three days. He could redo it in three days when it was had taken uh, 46 years, I think, to build uh, the second temple uh, or what it was called the second temple, the one that was started by uh, Herod the Great several years before. <clears throat> so the cleansing of the temple is uh, an important thing and that is why in, on Good Friday uh, one of the scenes of our faith here is the stripping of the temp of the altar and the actual washing of the altar as part of our uh, Good Friday observance. Okay. We have another here uh, little segment about the cursing of the fig tree. It says uh, when he was going back to the city in the morning, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he went over to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, he said to the tree, may no fruit ever come from you again. And immediately the tree withered. Well, everybody thinks, well, gee, why would he do such a thing? Whether he did this physically or just in words, we're not sure, but the point is, it was a condemnation of the actions of people who know better but do nothing about it. It is our faith is a faith that requires doing something. We cannot just make our faith between ourselves and God and ignore everyone else. Our faith is a requirement. So this is an example where Jesus is condemning the tree because it looks good and healthy and it should look productive, but is not. And therefore it is being condemned because it was 
representing itself as a beautiful uh, tree of value because of its fruit, but it was not productive. Uh, I want to go on. I'm not going to get to every one of these, but uh, there are several teachings in this section that we want to cover because they almost all in some way point to the end, the end times, the end of Christ's mission, uh, and our end. The parable of uh, two sons. This is, a, again, a teaching that has a long-term message. And it's the story of a father who has a rather large estate and he has two sons through whom he operates and runs this estate and he tells one son to go off and do something and the son thinks about it and he said, no, I'm sorry, I'm tired of it, I'm not going to do this today and walks off. He tells another one, son, you go off and do such and such and the son said, right on, Dad, I'll go out and do it. But he doesn't. He, you know, he sits back behind and does it. And meanwhile, the first son has a change of thought. Hmm, I'd better go back and do something. The whole idea here that God is trying to get across is that even though we are sinners. If we repent and change our ways and try our best to be what God wants us to be according to his rules and his will, then he will accept us back and we have every possibility of getting to heaven. But on the other hand, God has given all of us certain talents, certain abilities, and a certain role in his plan of salvation. And if we act like we are great uh, Christians but don't fulfill that, then why should he let us into heaven? You see the point there? I'm sort of abbreviating a lot of this because there's so much uh, of this detail, and it's like these are things he's got to get across before he can end his mission. Uh, it's like that long list of details that we uh, have before we go on a trip. Okay. The parable of a couple tenants. Another parable says here, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard put a hedge around it, dug a wine press, and built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants and went on a journey. When vintage time came, he sent his servants to the tenants to obtain his produce. But the tenants seized the servants. One they beat, another they killed, a third they stoned. Again, the owner sent servants, more numerous than the first. But they treated him in the same way. Finally, he sent his son, thinking, <coughs> excuse me, 
they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said uh, to one another, this is the year, come, let us kill them and acquire his inheritance. So they seized him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to the tenants when he comes? And so those listening, particularly the Pharisees, because it was directed to them, he says, they said, he will put uh, those wretched men to a wretched death and lease his, lease his vineyard to other tenants who give him the produce at the proper time. Jesus said, did you not read the scriptures, the stones that, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. By the Lord, this has been done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. This is a quotation from Psalm 118. Now, who is the landowner in this case? Hmm? God himself. All right. But who are the messengers that were sent the prophets and the apostles and other prominent people who are the tenants the Jewish people right at least in this story yes us later on alright uh, so you can see how this is sort of a parody on the whole life of Judaism that God has sent people after people after people to try to get the Jewish people to come back and be faithful to God through the teachings of Moses and yet they refused and even when Christ himself God's son was sent that was not acceptable to them either, and they killed him. Now, there's a little point here that says, and they, um, finally, they sent his son, um, thinking that they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to him, they said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and acquire his inheritance. So they seized him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What is that referring to? Anyone? Out of the city, yes. The Jewish people had another law that they could not kill anybody in the city. They had one of the one of the Ten Commandments, you know, was "Thou shalt not kill." Period. And yet, one of the one of the six hundred and thirteen Jewish laws was they could not kill anybody within the city of Jerusalem. Yes, yes, they could. Uh, so that is why he had to be killed outside of the city. And that is why Golgotha, uh, where he was crucified, is outside the city. See the fulfillment there? That is why it's in here, here. Okay. Parable of the wedding. This is a 
parable here, remember, a parable is a story with a message. It is not history. So, the parable of, of the wedding feast. So, rich man gives this wedding feast, and he's sent out a lot of uh, invitations. They didn't take care of the, you know. <laughs> uh, Joe and I were talking before about something that happened in her case. Anyways, they send out all of these invitations, but one by one, the invited guests make excuses. Oh, they can't come for this reason, they can't come for that reason, and they got to take care of this, etc., etc. And so the wealthy landowner, the host, goes out and has anybody and everybody come in that he wants. But when he goes in to see the guest, he sees one that doesn't have the proper wedding, wedding garment on. All right. Now, the custom of the time was that if the guest did not have a proper wedding garment on, the host would provide it. All right. The host would provide it. Now, coming into the feast, the wedding feast, is a parody on heaven coming into our final reward. The guests who were originally invited neglected to come. That is the Jewish people. So the doors were open to anybody and everybody under certain conditions that they have a wedding garment on, which is the sign of purity. And whether they had to work for it, or whether it was provided through purgatory. Don't let me get involved in that yet. Uh, but one guy tries to get in through the back door without the proper wedding garment on. Right? And that is against the rules. So he is punished severely. And of course, that is somebody who doesn't is not purified in the proper way. Remember, God and sinful mankind cannot coexist together in heaven. And therefore, mankind has to be purified if he dies uh, with uh, less than serious sin upon his soul. And that is the whole role of purgatory. So he cannot get in without that purification process. That's what this parable is all about. We have another uh, little uh, lesson here on the question about the resurrection. Remember, in their teachings, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a great deal of difference in their interpretation even of Jewish laws. And the Pharisees had some idea of life after death and heaven, but it was never fully developed and fully understood. But the Sadducees were totally against it. They felt that there was no life after death. Uh, when we die, that was it. And if you didn't get your uh, share of uh, wealth and 
good times before, then so be it. You were lost. And so they come to Jesus because they've been trying to trap him with various um, errors, what they consider were errors in his teachings. And they say to him, uh, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother shall marry his wife, marry the wife, and raise up descendants for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and you know, you've heard this story over and over and over. Uh, there were seven brothers. This story is used in several different places. It comes out of the book of Daniel, and it is used uh, in several places that um, is in question to the resurrection. And Jesus says, uh, you, you know, the same woman marries seven brothers, which of course we know is quite an exaggeration uh, beyond our imagination, and none of them had children, and therefore the question is, well, when they get to heaven, uh, whose wife is she going to be? You know? How on earth could she have seven husbands? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're just trying to make a point, Madge. Yeah. <laughs> and Jesus, <laughs> Jesus says to them, uh, you are misled because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, uh, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. <clears throat> when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. There's an interesting story later on in the Acts of the Apostles where St. Paul gets into the same kind of argument, again, between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, and at one point... Uh, well, actually, the, the Pharisees had conjured up some accusation against Paul, and the Sadducees sort of join in, but they didn't quite agree with each other. And so Paul realizes this, and at some point he brings up the point of uh, the resurrection, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees start arguing against each other. And so Paul just sort of walks away. Otherwise, he was in a lot of trouble before that. It's kind of an interesting little story. Yeah. There is another point that Jesus is trying to make to the Jewish people and again to us. And that is when he is questioned about what is the greatest commandment. Because the point is here, they are trying to trap him in various um, sayings against the law, against the Torah, 
and that they can use uh, to, against him. So they ask him, well, what's the greatest commandment? And of course, if he picked out any one, uh, he would, you know, they would find something to connect with him. So he says, the greatest commandment is this, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. But the second is like you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this comes right out of uh, the Old Testament and is a very important point in Jewish rules, but these guys weren't accepting it and they weren't living by it either. Here's another one that I really uh, sort of like. Uh, it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus questioned them, saying, what is your opinion about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. And he said to them, well then, how come David says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Lord, saying, the Lord is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I place your enemies under your feet. So the Lord said to my Lord, said, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to answer him nor from that day on did anyone dare ask him any more questions. It's a question, it's a parable, I mean it's a riddle you might say. If David calls God, no, if David calls Jesus his son, <laughs> It's one of, one of those that, that I even have a hard time uh, putting in the right way. Yeah. All, all right. He, Jesus is called the son of David. All right. But how can he be called to, uh, Lord, uh, David's son? All right. It's it's a, a riddle, but I um, I got to show you this. Just I don't know if you can all read that or not from here. But Jesus is David's Lord by virtue of being God. Jesus is David's son by virtue of being a human descendant. Just as easy as that, really simple. All right. As God, he is David's Lord. As a human being, he is a descendant, and therefore a son of David. But you see, they didn't accept Jesus as Lord and therefore, that's why they could not answer the riddle. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
David is held up as an extremely important part of Jewish faith. Even though, you know, he killed uh, the husband of Bathsheba, Uriah, and married her in spite of uh, the problems. And there were several other things that he did. But he also did many good things as well. Um, but that's why they looked up to David and to Solomon to some degree too. But Solomon had a lot of problems. Uh, particularly later on in life, Solomon, you know, married, it says 500 wives and uh, a number of concubines as well. Uh, even though the God told him not to, uh, he was an extremely wealthy man and uh, was uh, very proud of his game. Uh, well, yes, he led a very colorful life, yes. <laughs> However, you know, the time of Abraham, I mean, I'm sorry, the time of David and Solomon was considered the golden age of Judaism because many good things did happen at that time. It was one of them, and probably Solomon, who encouraged the writing down of Jewish history. Remember, prior to that, the only thing that they had written down was the Ten Commandments. And in that age and culture, uh, if you didn't have a written history, you were not considered a nation. You were not considered a real people. And therefore, it was, we believe, Solomon, we have no way of knowing for sure, uh, to start writing down uh, the Jewish histories, which became the basis for the law, the Torah, and all of the other books of the Old Testament. <clears throat> Jesus here is denouncing the scribes and the Pharisees and is listed here in the form of seven woes. This is chapter 23. And I'd like to go through them because they're rather important, I think. And again, it all points to the idea of last-minute teachings to the apostles and to us. The first woe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. <clears throat> you lock the kingdom of heaven before human beings. You do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow entrance to those trying to enter. In other words, they've blocked, they've put up so many rules and regulations, so many prohibitions, so many requirements, that it became virtually impossible for the Jewish people to really grow in holiness by observing all of these laws. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You traverse sea and land to make one convert, and when that happens, you make him a child of Gehenna twice as much as yourselves. In other words, they go out of their ways to bring people into Ju Judaism 
but they make them sinners because the convert cannot observe and absolve, observe and absorb all of these rules and regulations. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if one swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if one swears by the gold of the temple, one is obliged. Blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? And you say, if one swears by the altar, meaning nothing, but if one swears by the gift on the altar, <clears throat> one is obligated, you blind ones. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? One who swears by the altar swears by it and all that is upon it. One who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells on it. <clears throat> One who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who is seated on it. Now, before you question all of that, Remember, swearing in this context is not using foul language. It is taking an oath to back up or support a commitment. Right. So let's read that again just so you get ideas. <clears throat> Woe to you blind guides who say, if one swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if one swears by the gold of the temple, one is obligated. Lying fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? Then you say, if one swears by the altar. Remember, swearing by a certain object was part of the contract that was being made. And Various objects within the temple uh, had certain values, and it was appropriate to use those values along with whatever was the object of the contract. Right. <clears throat> I won't belabor that too much. Let's go on. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pay tithes of mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier things of the law, judgment and mercy and fidelity. But these you should have done without neglecting the others, blind guides who strain out the gnat but swallow the camel. <clears throat> there are seven of these. <clears throat> so the fifth one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of cups and dishes, but inside they are full of plunder and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, clean first the inside of the cup so that outside uh, also may be clean. Now, he's not talking about dishes here. He's talking about their hearts and their minds, their objectives. Let's do that one again. You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish. In other words, the outside of yourself, your appearance, 
or your contract or whatever it is. But inside, uh, you are full of plunder and self-indulgence. You don't give up uh, the greediness that is in your heart. Cleanse first the inside, that is the heart and the mind and the soul, so that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones and every kind of filth. Even so, on the outside you appear righteous, but inside you are filled with hypocrisy and evil doing. He's not making any friends here, I'm sure. And the last, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the memorials uh, of the righteous. And you say, if we lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have joined them in shedding the prophets' blood. <clears throat> Thus you bear witness against yourselves that you are children of those who murdered the prophets. Now, fill up what your ancestors measured out, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How can you flee from the judgment of Gehenna? Therefore, I behold, therefore, behold, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you killed and crucified. Some of them you scourged in your synagogues and pursue from town to town so that there may come upon you all the righteous blood shed upon earth from the righteous blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered uh, between the sanctuary and the altar. And then I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. All right, this is a parody really on the previous lesson of the tenants, you know, sending all of the prophets and so forth, it's the same kind of thing. You're sure not making any um, <clears throat> friends here. But then there is a quiet moment here where Jesus realizes and he says, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent, were sent to you. How many times I've yearned to uh, gather your children together as a hen gathers her young under his wings, or her wings. Uh, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house will be abandoned, desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That really is in reference to our conversion of heart. You will not see God again until your heart and your mind is converted. Chapter 24 and 25 is what we call or what is often called by scholars, uh, the small apocalypse, or the minor apocalypse. And that is in referring to the book of Revelation, which they say is the greater apocalypse. All right. Well, you've got to take the word apocalypse 
uh, carefully here. The word apocalypse is often referred to in modern times, modern study, and at this time as well, uh, as sort of the end and the dangers and the destruction and all of the calamities that are involved in the end, because they thought the world was going to uh, die by some major catastrophe and everybody would sort of be caught up in it. Uh, the book of Revelation really doesn't say that. The book of Revelation really doesn't talk about the end of the world. It mentions that it will come, but it, that is not the uh, primary importance of that book at all. Uh, the whole idea is of the book of Revelation, it is the last warning in the Bible that in essence says, look fellas, boys and girls, you've got to change your ways to my ways or else. But there's no other way out of this world except either my way to heaven or your way to hell. Right. And it says, you know, the dangers and all of the gloom and doom is in reference to things that have happened in the past. God says, I have done this in the past to show you that I can do it and I will do it again if necessary. So, wise up. In fact, the paper that I gave you today, or I hope that you've gotten a copy of it at the door up there, that this is something to think about. It really is, in essence, the same kind of thing. If we totally neglect God and want him out of our ways of thinking and doing and so forth, how can we say, well, where was God when this happened? How can we expect him uh, to look after us if we totally ignore him and don't want him in any part of our life? God is superhuman, you might say. Supernatural, superhuman. And in many ways, he will react like we will. If you totally ignore your parents and want to go your own way, well, how can you uh, complain if they end up ignoring you? Same type of thing. All right. So I want to get into chapter 24 and 25 because it really is very important. So Jesus left the temple area and was going away when his disciples approached him to the point uh, to point out the temple buildings. And he said to them in reply, you see all of these things, do not uh, do you see all of these things? Amen, I see. There will not be left here a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. And if what he's doing is he's talking about the destruction of the temple, as I had mentioned earlier, uh, by the Romans in the year 70 AD. And it was caused 
or God allow it to be caused by the fact that the Jewish temple rulers and leaders were using it for the wrong purpose. All right. It was not being used solely as a place of worship and prayer, but it was used to gain uh, money, position, power, and a sense of great importance and authority by the temple rulers. And of course, they in turn were leading the average people in that same direction. And God said, that is not what it's all about. So that is very important. He also goes on to talk about the calamities, the uh, problems that the apostles and the new converted Christians uh, are going to face in the uh, years immediately following his death and resurrection. At one point in time, the uh, Acts of the Apostles says at one of the end of the chapters that all was peaceful and well and the church was growing uh, very fast. But that is not exactly the right picture because there was a great deal of persecution before uh, very long. Right after the, the first Pentecost Sunday, which was 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, the apostles, with a new sense of spirit, went out and started to preach and teach with great authority, great conviction, great confidence in themselves because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they forgot about being afraid of anybody and everything and did all of this on their own with the guidance of the Holy Spirit and being commissioned, as we will see in the last meeting two weeks from today, uh, that God commissioned the apostles to do this. Okay. But it creates a great deal of turmoil because what is being taught now is that Jesus fulfilled the rules and laws laid down by Moses and that were being followed to the letter of the law uh, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and a few others. And of course, much of this uh, contradicts those rules and regulations, much of what the apostles were now teaching. And St. Paul, later on, gets into greater trouble by saying that uh, Christians need not observe all of the laws of the Torah or the Jewish faith because those were fulfilled by Jesus. The only ones that really continued over were the basics of the Ten Commandments themselves. And that was something that got everybody into trouble and created an all-out war between the Christians and the Jews. Then, in the year 66 AD, the Romans had had enough of this infighting between 
uh, one sect of Jewish people and another sect of Jewish people, the Christians and the old Orthodox Jews. Uh, and so they come in to try to quell this disturbance and they only make things worse. And they came in around the middle of the year 66 AD. I want to show you just something here. And the destruction of the temple took place in December of the year 70 AD. How long is that time difference? Right. Three and a half. That was predicted in the, in the book of Daniel. And in one of the uh, one of the prophets, three and a half years of their calamity. All right. The Jew, the Romans came in to quell the disturbance between the Christians and the Jews. They only made things worse, and they destroyed it all. God allowed that. Remember, God promised protection to the Jewish people as long as they were faithful to him. But they weren't faithful to him and they went really to extremes in desecrating the temple itself and that's why God allowed that temple to be destroyed never to be rebuilt again. Very important point. The temple area was vacated. Judaism was decimated with this destruction in 70 AD because that was the center, the visible center of Judaism at that time. And with that gone, the priesthood was gone. And with the priesthood gone, there was no structure whatsoever to Judaism. And it never regained structure again. Yes, you have a lot of Jewish people, you have a lot of synagogues, you have no temple. There is no temple even though <clears throat> several of the synagogues call themselves temple, uh, whatever, all right? But they technically are not temples. Way back at the time of David, David made a rule within Judaism that he obtained from God himself that there was only to be one temple and that would be in Jerusalem. All the other temples were then taken apart. The whole idea of the synagogue system started while the people were captives in Babylon in the 6th century. A synagogue was a house of prayer, not sacrifice. And even though when they came back uh, from Babylon to Israel, they continued the synagogue system uh, in various places, but it was a house of prayer and study. It was not a temple. So now you have Jewish buildings of worship 
but they are synagogues, they are not temples. We have another parable here uh, about the fig tree, and it is one that concerns preparedness and being watchful. It says, learn a lesson from the fig tree. Now, there's been many stories about fig trees, and people ask, well, why the fig tree? Because the fig tree was a very common tree, and still is, in that particular area, because figs need a dry climate. They do not like a lot of water, uh, and it just seems that that area was very suitable for figs, and of course, figs require very little um, attention, except for pruning in the fall, and uh, they do bear uh, a very, I think, flavorable and edible fruit. So they were very common and useful. Yeah, there's an, another sort of uh, custom within Judaism that sitting under a fig tree was uh, not necessarily well, I, I don't know how to explain it, really. Sitting under a fig tree was sort of a an imaginary way of saying that you were trying to um, work out a problem in your mind. Uh, what the connection was, I really don't remember, but uh, remember when... <clears throat> When Andrew and Peter bring Nathaniel to Jesus, uh, Jesus makes a big comment about what a good man he was. And uh, Nathaniel says to him, well, how did you know me? Uh, we just met. And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Uh, and in other words, he's complimenting him because he knew that Nathaniel was a good man and had tried to become better through his own resources. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was uh, Philip. Well, maybe it was Philip. You know, any any one of those guys. Yeah. Other yeah. <laughs> Joel will say any one of those guys. You know. Yeah. Here's a parable that I think is extremely important and often misunderstood. The parable of the ten virgins, the five foolish and the five wise. You're all familiar with that. It says, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who, look, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones, when taking their lamps, brought no oil for them. <clears throat> but the wise brought flasks of oil with their lamps. And since the bridegroom was long delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight there was a cry, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And remember, in this culture, the bridegroom was the important part. You know, the bride 
doesn't make any difference. Forget it. It's totally reversed in our culture today. Uh, <clears throat> it says, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Come out and meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps have gone out. But the wise one replied, No, there may not be enough for us. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. And while they went off to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went into the wedding feast with him. Then the door was locked. Now, the wedding feast has often been used in Scripture as uh, an imaginary heaven, all right? Something that people could kind of rely on. Heaven was like a wedding or a wedding feast. All right. In this case, the bridegroom is God himself. All right. The door being locked, the keys of heaven are locked and only certain people will be let in. Okay. Those who are purified. Okay. Says then the door was locked. Afterwards, the other virgins, that is those who had to go up and find somebody at midnight to uh, buy some oil. Uh, afterwards, the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he said in reply, Amen, I say, I do not know you. Therefore, and I do not know you is the end of the story. Now he's turning it around to us and he says, therefore stay awake for you know neither the day nor the hour. And he's talking about our death. Right? Our death. But that's important if you think about it to be told when you get to heaven because like that paper uh, you got this morning uh, if you neglect God, if you put God out of your life, when you die and go to the pearly gates, how can you expect him to open the door and welcome you in? Because you didn't want him all the time you were here on earth. And now, what do you expect? Yeah. And you'll want him now. And what he's going to say is, go away. I do not know you. That would be a hell in itself. And that's what hell is all about. It is not, you know, the guy with the pitchfork and the fire and all of that stuff. It is after seeing the face of God and then being told, go away, I don't want you. Never being able to see that face again. That is hell in itself. The anxiety that that would develop within the human body and mind and heart would create a turmoil that could not be extinguished. So, that's one of the things that we extreme, extremely important that we must watch. All right. The last part of this is about a brief teaching on the end of the world. 
says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne, and all the nations will be assembled before him, and he will separate them one from the other, as a sheep separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, and his goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me the food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. A stranger, and you welcomed me. Naked, and you clothed me. Ill, and you cared for me. In prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will say, Well, when did we do all of those things, Lord? I'm cutting this short. Uh, And the king will say to them, Amen, I say to you, whether you... Whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. And then, of course, you have the negative side. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the fire. For I was hungry, etc., etc. And he will say, they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked and not minister to your needs? And he answered, Amen, I say to you, what you did not do for one of the least ones, you did not do for me. And these will go off to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is what I've said all along. It's either God's way or the highway. And that's the whole meaning of this. How can we expect God to welcome us in with open arms if we totally ignored him, not only ignored him directly, but ignored him and all of the people that he has asked us to watch and are a part of our life. The last part of this uh, is really about the end of the world, but uh, we're going to leave that until next week. Any questions? Yes? Uh, Rita asked, did the Jewish people understand all those parables? Probably not, yes. Uh, But that's what a parable is. It is a, a little story with a message. You see, they liked stories because they didn't have newspapers and television, thank God, uh, at that time. Uh, And stories were a form of entertainment. So that's why you had, you know, Aladdin and the Forty Thieves in Alabama, uh, where there was the other one, well... They understood, yes, but they were the leaders, uh, particularly the scribes, who tried very hard to teach, but what they taught was the wrong thing. All right. So uh, parables were very important 
uh, way of teaching and communicating in those days. And it was something that was, you were given a little bit of a problem in the story, and you were then uh, required to think it out, think it through as to what the proper meaning was. Well, unfortunately, they didn't always get the right answer. Yeah. So that, your answer to your question is probably not. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, all right. Now, what we've done here is we've come to the end of all of the nitty gritty stuff. Thank God. <clears throat> Next week, the two main topics will be the mass, which is the current reiteration of the Last Supper, which was the last Seder service or Passover meal of Jesus and his apostles. The meaning of the Mass to us today is not just something that we have to do on Sunday, but something that where God himself gives us himself. And that's what I'm going to be talking about next week. And then the actual passion, death, and of Christ himself. The resurrection and its meaning will leave for the following week. But next week is extremely important. I hope that all of you will make an effort to be here. Because it fits in with the whole, of the, the whole idea of Holy Week, which is the last week of this month. And so much of our Holy Week liturgies come from these scenes that we will be discussing next week and some of the things that we talked about today. So it's important and I hope you will come. And then our last meeting will be two weeks from today. Any questions? All right. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts, not so much to understand what was said up here, but how it fits in to our life and whether we are conforming to what the teachings, what the scriptures are trying to tell us, what we should be doing versus what we are doing. Give us the strength and the grace to open our minds and hearts and truly giving ourselves a full examination of where we stand in our relationship to Jesus Christ, our relationship to God through Christ. So we ask your blessing on our efforts <clears throat> to help us make our Holy Week a little more meaningful. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.